The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, I have a very special guest. He is a very longtime friend of mine and extremely successful, internationally known consultant and coach to CEOs and multinational organizations. And he is the founder and CEO of Avatar Resources. He's an author. Uh, His latest book is Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. He has several other books. He is an adjunct professor at Beijing University. And and he does too many more things for me to continue to go on and on and on because we want to talk to Blaine. So, Blaine, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Cheryl. It's wonderful to be back with you. It's great to have you here. Where are you today? Well, today I'm down in uh, Southern California uh, in the Marina del Rey area of Los Angeles and just kind of enjoying the sunshine. Uh, I'm going to hope that that continues by the time this uh, interview gets aired because it's beautiful here today. All right. So, you know, it, um, it doesn't it always shine sunshine in Southern California? <laughs> I think so. It's hard to tell what season it is. Well, in case you're wondering, it's fall now. <laughs> Thank you. Fall. Yeah, I was up in the Seattle area not too long ago, and it, it was definitely fall up there. So, uh, yeah. So, congratulations, Blaine, on your latest book, "Compassionate Capitalism: A Journey to the Soul of Business." You know, I because I know you, I have heard you talk about this concept for many years, and your perspective has been for a very long time that, you know, capitalism is great and capitalism is not so great. So you've been able to make the distinction that there are two sides to this. And that there is a middle ground, but it requires change. So why is this whole concept of compassionate capitalism important to you? Oh, that is a $64,000 question, not to date myself here, but um, it's important to me because business is the single most pervasive force on this planet. Uh, there is, I mean, there really is, Cheryl, there is nothing on this planet that escapes the consequence of business activity. And I say consequence not just in a negative state, but, but also in a positive way. Uh, business activity has consequence. And, you know, I can be an oyster in the middle of the, uh, uh, on an atoll in the middle of the Pacific, and I am going to be impacted by the consequence of CO2 emissions in the water. Uh, my shell is going to be uh, 
beginning to dissolve. The calcium is going to be uh, in, uh, actually uh, impacted greatly by increased CO2, uh, CO2 levels in the water. That's a direct consequence of business activity. So, I mean, there, there is nothing on this planet that escapes the consequence of business activity. Um, you know, the good news about it is, you know, we have seen um, poverty, uh, and it will be, you know, abject poverty will be eliminated, eliminated in our lifetime, and that's a direct result of an economic model called capitalism. The problem with it is it's not um, actually working particularly well right now. Uh, the pendulum has swung too far, and the good news, I think, and uh, I'll just kind of get on this uh, platform here a little bit, because it is the most pervasive force on the planet, there is a lot that business can do to right the ship, so to speak. Uh, if, um, we, if we can actually, and our business leaders begin to, and, and consumers begin to really appreciate the power that business has. It transcends mm-hmm. national governments. It transcends uh, uh, national boundaries. It transcends fiscal currencies. It, you know, it is pervasive. And with that power, I think there comes a moral obligation to do something about the quality of life on uh, this planet, not just for human beings, but for all, uh, all, all on this planet. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of the, the nutshell of it. I could, I could go on for a very long time around that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the net of the question is it's because business makes such a difference that this book is important and relevant. Mm. So is it all business? Is it, um, you know, just the international corporations? Is it the person who runs the hardware store? You know, I mean, is all business? It's all Does business. that affect the planet? It's all business. Uh, and, th- and I say that for this reason. Um, we spend, uh, I mean, if I say we in a, a very colloquial way, uh, everybody works in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, and we all visit the you know, mom-pop grocery store in the corner, uh, our local restaurants, uh, the service station that we go to to fuel our cars. Um, and these workers, you know, the folks that uh, are employed by these businesses and the consumers and the customers that you know, come into these businesses are impacted by the business's activities. And in my experience, I've been, I've been consulting and working in business for 45 years, um, and it's been my experience that almost every organization I've ever encountered in some way is toxic to the human spirit. Um, most businesses will quash the spirit out of people in, in, in some very interesting ways and not particularly healthy ways. And that's one of the reasons that the subtitle of the book is what it is, you know, A Journey to the Soul of Business. Um, there's a spirit that informs life. And if our institutions, particularly our business institutions, uh, because of their power, because of their pervasiveness, aren't honoring the spirit that informs life, the spirit that... Yeah, creates that little spark of aliveness, you know, when people are doing things that they love to do and they're having access to things that, you know, actually bring them joy and, and are, you know, empowering, not denigrating, then we've got a, a different uh, game that we can play, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and business has the power to do that, whether you're uh, a small mom-pop you know, operation in the corner store or you're a megalith, uh, you know, 
Yeah, and there's some there's, there's some folks in you know, some very large organizations that are beginning to realize this. Um, I mean, Unilever is uh, an example that I uh, highlight in the book. Uh, they're doing some very interesting things there. Paul Pullman, the CEO there, is in front of this in a very interesting way. I think Howard Schultz at Starbucks. Um, and then my local dry cleaner, they're doing some stuff that is just fascinating about how they're actually you know, reducing toxicity as a consequence of cleaning my clothes. I mean, all that stuff comes into play. Of course. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said, which is that abject poverty will be eliminated in our lifetime because of capitalism. And as I look at the wealth disparity that keeps getting bigger and bigger, um, and the number, the sheer numbers of people whose incomes are dropping, their capacity to live above the poverty line is decreasing. How How does poverty end in our lifetime? It has to do with what... Capitalism actually has enabled, and it is it is an incredible creator of wealth. You know, I mean that's yes. yeah, not but not to be uh, to ignored. Money, um, and it's that yeah, not just money, but yeah, it, access to education, access yes. to uh, health care. Um, money is part of that, but when we look yes. at um, what. Uh, capitalism actually does. It brings a greater creativity uh, to the business process. I mean, you know, you know, what, what, you know, I use an example in the book um, yeah, out of Kenya. Uh, there is a, a mobile application, a mobile phone application called M-Pesa. You know, and it's, it's a direct you know, buying thing. I mean, you load some... Uh, Kenyan shillings into your phone, and it is uh, hugely pervasive in the uh, economic climate of Kenya. And you will see people that are living on two and three dollars a day using their mobile phone. Uh, and it's not a smartphone; it's just a mobile phone. But they've loaded. They go to little kiosks, and they will load you know whatever shillings they've got into this M-Pesa uh, platform, and they can pay with it. So it increases mobility. It increases access to goods. Um, there's a lot of things that happen with this, and current trends, um, if they continue, and, and we're looking at this as measured by the, the, you know, the proportion, the percentage of the world population uh, population living on less than a dollar a day. It will be eliminated by the year 2020, approximately. I mean, that's kind of what uh, the the data indicates. Now, uh, that's abject poverty, uh, which gives us a platform to begin to do some very interesting things in terms of how we actually uplift the quality of experience of living in some of these areas if they're not as concerned with uh, hand-to-mouth subsistence living. It increases flexibility. It increases a sense of resourcefulness amongst the people. We do quite a bit of work, my wife's foundation, uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa as well as in uh, parts of India. And we're seeing a lot of this actually happen where the, the standards of living are rising. And it's, you know, we can call it capitalism. It's really economic activity that's beginning to take hold in a, in a, in a very profound way. And it's getting into some of the furthest reaches of uh, of the world. So yeah. that's the good news. 
Um, well, and, and that's you know that's a, that's a really good example. Um, your wife Cynthia Kirstie, who has the Unstoppable Foundation, that's a really good example of someone who understands business, who understands how to take um, what the market can do to help people live a better quality of life and translate that into success and projects that um, make a difference in people's mm-hmm. lives. Yeah. 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 And so that, that, that's the positive news about you know, the economic yeah. model uh, we call capitalism. And there's a downside to it that uh, the book addresses as well. So, you know, I think a lot of people um, in our current environment, especially in the U.S., but certainly around the world, um, are looking at the economy, looking at economics in general as um, not being fair across the board. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's an old pattern of, um, you know, money is evil, people who have wealth don't care about anybody but themselves, Um, you know, there's this pattern that when people begin to get angry about the economic state or their lack of opportunity, that message tends to get broadcast in a large way. And it feels to me like we're in one of those phases right now. And, you know, so how do you get people who feel so disenfranchised to believe that this actually can change, that this system is meant for them as well? Yeah. The... What, what you're addressing is actually kind of a cyclical phenomena, and uh, it, it's happened before. I mean, we go back to the robber barons at the turn of the 19th century, and you know, the, wealth, the wealth disparity that we're experiencing today existed then as well. And so there, there's you know, a, an ebb and a flow that seems to be in play here. One of the things that I believe is that with an increase in awareness, an increase in consciousness, and an increase in communication, which the Internet enables, uh, the access to smartphones, as an example, enables, we tend to reduce, I think, we're going to be tending to reduce that ebb and swing flow, and, and, and if we can get ourselves righted again, we're going to see less likelihood of going back to that wealth disparity cycle uh, that end of the cycle uh, in uh, in a significant way, partly because you know people begin to become more aware of it, and transparency is really important transparency and this is you know when you start looking at transparency and its impact on the way that people hoard money and the way that people use money uh, I think Citizens United is a great example of that uh, from a political standpoint. There is a huge backlash around the whole impact that Citizens United has created in terms of uh, compromising the electoral system. And that's a function of money aggregating at, uh, in a very unhealthy way at the top levels of uh, society. And mm. 
Yeah, so it, and it's being spent to sway election uh, to sway elections. Now that's not new news. That's been around for a long time. What is right. is the increasing transparency around who is actually uh, involved in this, which is why you see a lot of pushback for the folks that are you know, in in favor of United uh, Citizens United to shield uh, the. Um, uh, identities of the folks that are contributing yeah. to these super PACs and that sort of thing. So right. business, again, has a responsibility here to uh, address some of these things. Um, you know, a very good friend of mine and also a friend of yours, a fellow by the name of Raj Sisodia, uh, wrote yeah. a book a couple of years ago that I love. I, and, I, and I actually cite the book in my book. It's called Firms of Endearment. Yeah, and I love, I love the title of this book, Firms of Endearment. And what he's looking at are companies, organizations um, around the world that have explicit values around connection, around love. Literally, not, I'm not, not, not talking romantic love. I'm talking about love in um, yeah, more of an agape sort of a, a sense. And, he, and he's looking at how do they perform? Because a lot of people think that these quote-unquote soft values don't actually have teeth. They don't actually make a difference. But what his research shows is that when contrasted to the S&P 500 and uh, Jim Collins's Good to Great companies, and Good to Great was the most popular business book uh, of the last century, when we look at the disparity uh, in terms of performance, the firms of endearment actually outperform both the S&P 500 and the good to great company by exponential degrees. Firms of endearment, it's a 14 to 1 difference between the S&P companies, and it's a 6 to 1 difference in performance to the good to great companies. And it's predicated primarily on these values. People feel as if they make a difference in these companies, and because they feel they're seen, because they feel that they make a difference, their behaviors and their actions reflect that. And it shows up in the, in the company's performance. It shows up in the way that the company can actually retain good people. These are companies that become employers of choice, and they become stewards. I mean, really, you know, stewards of uh, resources in a very interesting way. And they begin paying attention to their impact far beyond just what the traditional shareholder-stakeholder uh, Dynamic would suggest that, you know, in which, you know, which is what most companies pay attention to. You know, the shareholders are where their focus ends, not these good uh, well, terms of endearment companies. Absolutely, you know that is exactly what part of our problem is, and you know what um, what has made a lot of companies less effective, and that is the focus on short term profits, and you know that kind of interferes long-term perspective. And so there's a real dance and a re-educating of leaders in order to change this, as well as a re-educating of investors and the market. And that is no small agenda there. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back with Blaine Bartlett after this break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. 
leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my special guest today, Blaine Bartlett, who is the author of Compassionate Capitalism, a journey to the soul of business. So, Blaine, in the last segment, we were talking about how capitalism has been good and bad and that there are some unintended consequences. And, you know, as people have moved away from actually creating their own products or, you know, expressing their creativity through their work, it has become less and less easy to feel good about business, feel good about what you're doing. It becomes more of a, um, simply a rote task in some, some areas. And then there's the element of, uh, you know, focusing on the bottom line and short-term profits, et cetera. And you have a special term for this. Tell us about the poverty of meaning. <laughs> Good. Um, the poverty of meaning. Um, the the term itself was coined um, by uh, an Indian economist, uh, Amartya Sen. Uh, he won the Nobel Economic Prize in 1998. But he's defined poverty as a situation where you know people lack the means to appear in public without shame. Now, when I came across that, I went, "Hmm, that's an interesting way to describe poverty." It's when people lack the means so, so to appear in public without shame. People lack the means to appear in public without shame. And, oh, and what he was specifically speaking to, and it, and it really went to what I was feeling about you know, economic activity as it's conducted today, it's focused solely on consumption. And it leaves both society as a whole, but also individuals bereft of a soul and a heart. It just, I mean, it, it, we, we have to, you know, the whole aphorism of keeping up with the Joneses, that's what he's speaking to. You know, when capitalism first emerged in 1776, and it wasn't called that at that time, uh, Adam Smith wrote the book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, and it was yeah. essentially the first time an economic model had been described uh, in print. And that became the template for what uh, we call today capitalism. And it was predicated on you know, mutual benefit. You know, uh, I trade with you and you trade with me and we both win. It was, it was a 
uh, reinforcing, positive reinforcing you know, process. It wasn't a zero-sum thing where there's a, 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 yeah, just a fixed pie and yeah, I've got to get mine. What a lot of people don't know is that the Wealth of Nations was actually based in, 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 in the Wealth of Nations. Smith talks about this thing that he calls the invisible hand of commerce, the invisible hand. And it was the invisible hand that guided that, that whole idea of mutual benefit. And it was informed by a book that he wrote about 16 years earlier that was called The Moral Imperative. Mm -hmm. And The Moral Imperative essentially uh, was, in this, remember the the, the times here, this is in the uh, early 17, or mid 1700s, early 1700s. About that time, Rene Descartes was in play, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of theory here, but I think the historical background is kind of interesting and useful. You know, Rene Descartes was famous for, I think, therefore I am. And that was a declaration, really, that, you know, man is separate from nature. And I say man in a very generic way, that humans are separate from nature. And that, and it it was, you know, predicated in part on the scientific inquiry and, you know, all the stuff that kind of led up to it. Smith didn't agree with that necessarily. He felt that uh, man was intimately and uh, intricately linked with nature, and that's where the invisible hand and the moral imperative was actually born. Well, you fast forward to the 50s, 1950s or so, and Ayn Rand appears on the uh, the scene, and um, she's talking about... uh, not enlightened self-interest, which is what Adam Smith was talking about with the invisible hand, but she was talking about uh, self-interest. Yeah, um, yeah, self-interest for the sake of me benefiting uh, as an individual. And Milton Friedman, who was you know, also a Nobel laureate in economics, was also famous you know, for taking some of Ayn Rand's perspectives and saying the only purpose of business is to make a profit. And so from a historical perspective, you, you begin to see a timeline here that moves away from something that was relatively altruistic in its formulation to where we are today, which is everything is driven by profit incentive, which lends itself to quarterly results, and yet also lends itself to not investment in the truest sense of the word, but speculation, uh, you know, which is what a lot of investing actually is today. And it's that short-termness and it's that need to drive increasing profits that lends itself to increasing consumerism, which put us where we are today, which is I have to have the next, you know, I have to have the next iteration of the newest iPhone in order to feel like I'm keeping up. And without it, I start to feel shame. That goes to, you know, this is where the poverty of meaning comes from. It is about rampant consumerism. It's about consumption just for the sake of consumption because it's required to keep the economic engine running. I mean, George Bush, uh, after 9-11, his admonition to just go out and shop, get the economy back on track, get, go out and shop, mm-hmm. not because you need anything intrinsically, but because it's, in, you know, it's, it's crucial to the economic engine. And right. it's not. It's not. And it's, you know, <laughs> that's where I get, I mean, I just, my, my, I, I just start going, what are we doing here? Because yeah. that kind of consumerism is not sustainable. Yeah, it requires resources. And today the earth is in a position that, you know, there's a, there's a metric around this. But, you know, by August of every year we have used more, and that's the current metric, 
by, and it's decreasing in terms of time span. By August of this year, 2017 or 2016, we had used more resources in the production of our goods and services than the earth can replenish. And that time is getting shorter and shorter. If we don't get in front of this, I mean, we are at a tipping point. If we aren't in front of this, um, you know, we're going to find ourselves in some very, very interesting times that are not going to be pretty and they're not going to be pleasant. And, you know, the earth is going to be fine. It will recover. But, um, you know, who we are as a species, uh, I mean, 50% of uh, all species that were around at the advent of uh, globalization, or not globalization, but capitalism, uh, the Industrial Revolution in particular, 1770s, half of all species on this planet are now gone. They are now extinct because of economic activity. And that is, I mean, you, you, you start looking at that and you start bringing that into relief about what are we doing to ourselves? Mm. And I go back to there's a soul in play here, and I don't mean soul in a religious sense. I mean soul in the sense that there's a life force that we are tampering with. We are denigrating that we can't afford to not pay attention to. And that's what this book is about. There is, a, there is a way out, but we have to start looking in a different way, and we have to start behaving in a different way. The poverty of meaning, what we do in our lives, has to have intrinsic meaning. It's not going to be given to us by something external. Yeah, so, by buying the next you know, best thing is not going to bring my life more meaning. As a matter of fact, it's going right. to actually carve out a bigger hole that I then have to fill again. Right. So, you know, if we, our economy is truly driven by consumerism, and, you know, every time people stop spending, um, the market, you know, has a heart attack, and... Um, and then people, you know, are usually they stop spending when they're concerned about um, some big event that may take place. Um, you know, how, what do we replace it with? How do we replace consumerism with something else? What, what would that be? It starts, in my estimation, with how we define value. And right now, value is defined by uh, a P&L. You know, did we sell more than we did last quarter? And redefining value from a business activity point of view would sound something like this, and I'm just offering this up as a, as a possibility, um, that the purpose of business is to enhance the experience of living on this planet. That's the purpose of business, to enhance mm-hmm. the uh, the experience of being on this planet for all that are impacted and, and that are actually existing on the planet. That value statement, enhance the experience of being alive on this planet, is different than, you know, I'm going to m- manufacture something here because I think I can make a quick buck off of it. If I am offering you something, uh, either as a product or a service, and as a consequence of you receiving it, you genuinely feel as if your life has been enhanced. You're likely going to compensate me for it. You're going to pay me for it. You're, you know, there's, but the, the determining factor is here, I'm, making this, you know, I'm manufacturing this or I'm delivering this service, preparing this service, because I, because I genuinely believe it will uplift the quality of experience on, of living on this planet. Now, that's the end user uh, assessment. 
part of me as a manufacturer or a provider of services is I'm also in the man, you know, in, as I'm procuring resources. Is my way of procuring resources designed to enhance the quality and the experience of uh, living? So uh, if I'm extracting ore out of the ground, am I doing it in a way that honors the earth? Yeah. So there's, yeah, right now there's, you know, it's called externalities. These, these externalities, the cost of cleanup, aren't accounted for yeah, in the business model. They're just passed off to society to clean up, and the business doesn't really have to deal with it yeah, in many cases. We start taking into account these externalities. I um, mean, a, a great example of that is the use of plastics. There is today more plastic floating in the ocean by weight than there are fish in the ocean by weight. Yeah. Now, that is a really crazy number when you get your head around it. It is. So, you know, where is there when we throw things away? So part of my manufacturing process takes into account disposability, and not disposability from the standpoint of throwing away, but disposability mm-hmm. from the standpoint of how does it get reintroduced into the environment in a way that is generative. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the U.S., manufacturing volume has decreased a lot in the last 20 years and we have become more knowledge workers and um, more in the think tank business, right? And so, you know, where does the meaning for them come? And Because, you know, most manufacturing is happening not on U.S. soil. It's mm-hmm. happening offshore, it's happening in Asia, and it's happening, you know, some places in Europe, not many, um, you know, but what, 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 how do you do this if you're not talking about U.S. companies who have manufacturing in the U.S.? Part of the way that that gets handled, and I'm not you know, describing a panacea here. This is going to be difficult stuff to do. But you know, I'll, I'll use Nike as an example. When Nike, you know, they got hit real hard about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, with the use of child labor in their manufacturing processes. And they, as an organization, took a stand that required their suppliers to begin addressing the use of child labor. Uh, in terms of the you know, how their goods and services were being uh, produced, business has a reach, and whether we're yeah. manufacturing in this country or if that manufacturing has been offshored, uh, we still have a responsibility to ensure that it's done in a way that is not damaging, to the degree that we can make it not damaging to life on the planet, you know, life in the, in a spirit sense. Uh, as well as a material sense. Um, if, we, if we are addressing it from that perspective, and, and if that is part of our decision-making process, will we see prices going up? Possibly, uh, but maybe not. Uh, I mean, when we start, one of the things that I'd love to see happen here, right now, a major conversation in the boardrooms across the country, and I say boardrooms in the broadest sense here, it doesn't have to be a formal board, but in decision-making uh, conversations uh, amongst management teams is what's the trade-off? I mean, I've got a hard choice here to make. You know, which one gets the short end of the stick? 
What if we didn't have trade-offs as a viable option that we actually had to take into account the well-being of all constituencies that are impacted by our organization? That's going to get... that, That will force a really interesting conversation that can spark some creativity about how we go about our business activities. It doesn't have to be the same way it's always been where somebody ends up with the short end of the stick. If we can begin to find different ways to do this, you know, we end up creating a scenario where the constituencies that are impacted by business in all of its form are treated as equal stakeholders. The shareholder that has invested has no more right than any other stakeholder in the organization. Mm-hmm. Now, they think they do because they've got money, quote-unquote, invested here. But I've got my life invested, too. I've got the health and well-being of my family and my kids invested mm-hmm. as a stakeholder. Who's to say that mm-hmm. money is, the, is the, uh, yeah, supposed to be in the catbird seat here? Money is just well, uh, energy. Well, a lot of investors, the market says that. Investors I know they do. That. I People absolutely know they do. People who are, you know, making their wealth say that. And, um, you know, we money and um, profit are have become our um, our idol, right? They, and yep. we, we bow down to that to that idol. As opposed to bowing down to or taking into account of or considering uh, something other than that as a as a lodestone as as a true as, as a way to you know there's a moral imperative. I'm going back to Adam Smith here. There's a moral imperative, yes. here. and. It's the love of, I mean, if I go to scriptures, it's the love of money. It's not money itself. It's the love of money that causes problems. Money is just energy. That's all it is. It's energy. And if it gets dammed up, just like, in, I mean, if you take a dam, or a stream, and you dam it up, at some point in time, that dam will burst unless there's a, a, a way to continuously outflow the, 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 the water that's um, backed up behind it. And it can be calamitous. And that's what we're seeing today. Uh, this is... I mean, outside of the moral angst and the economic angst that wealth disparity causes, the stacking up of the 1%, you know, the aggregation of um, the money that the 1% holds today, when that dam breaks, the social unrest around it is, is, is enormously disruptive and destructive, potentially. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about you know, anything here that isn't new news. Uh, and I, you know, I, I love money. I absolutely love having money, and it's a force. I move it. It's not intended to be accumulated. The more I have access to, the better, as long as I'm continuing to move it. That's where the value comes, um, and, and because and I say value in the sense of if I'm moving it, you know, through philanthropic works or whatever it may be. Others are benefiting. Their lives are uplifted. I'm finding ways to move this energy that is uh, intended to create a positive uh, impact. So really what you're saying is that the key is having access to money. And so it's not so much the amount that you are worth, um, although that has a lot of power. Mm -hmm. It's about how how much access you have to money and 
investment and the opportunity to move the wealth. To move the wealth, exactly. And and I fully recognize, I mean, there has to be, and again, this is where I think that capitalism has been extremely beneficial. It has enabled us, by and large, to take care of base needs. Um, I think the movement uh, in the U.S. today to increase the minimum wage uh, is is really important to pay attention to because it is addressing the fact that people need a base on which to stand before they can then be free to do some other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that's in place, you know, John Maynard Keynes, uh, another economist, also another Nobel-winning economist, uh, first part of the nineteenth uh, or the twentieth century, said that um, humankind's real problem, if capitalism takes hold and actually works, humankind's real problem will be how to use freedom from pressing economic cares to live wisely and agreeably and well. That's a very interesting challenge. How to use our freedom from pressing economic cares to live wisely, agreeably, and well. So if we have these oligarchs, if we have the, you know, the, the top 1% in this country and around the world in a place where they don't have economic cares, which they do not have, how do they live wisely, agreeably, and well? That is the moral challenge. Because how do you define living well? It's not just about aggregating more. It's not about having you know, gold-plated faucets. It's more about how do you live well as a, as, a, as a sentient member of this ecosphere that we call Earth. Hmm. So, boy, that that brings up so much, because as you look at what's happening around the world today um, in societies, um, developing societies or, you know, the U.S. society, the the amount of angst and the amount of, um, oh, geez, just cynicism and the, the sense of, Lack of agreeability. I mean, there's there's this whole sense of um, there is no conversation. There is no discourse. We are just going to stand on our righteousness, mm-hmm. and you know, and a lot of that is focused around who has money slash who has access to opportunity because of money, um, and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, this feels like we have, I mean, you say we're at a pinnacle. It feels like the culture in this country, at least, um, is really at a precipice. We are really um, ready to kind of walk off the cliff. Is there a way to come out of this without letting it disintegrate? Yes, I think there is. And will it be easy? I don't think it will be. Um, But there is a way. And one of the things that I speak about a lot in the work I do, both in the consulting and the um, developmental work I do from a coaching perspective with executives, is that an increase in awareness increases my choice-making capacity. So one of the things that I want to be able to do is be able to find a way to slow down just long enough to pause 
And in that pause, make space to become more aware of what I'm actually thinking of, what it is that I'm actually doing. Uh, it, the, that pause gives rise to greater awareness that can facilitate me recognizing that there's different possibilities here than I had been considering. Um, I, in the book, again, I, I mentioned something that I call the merchant priest idea. And I, I used the one I, I really debated about whether I was going to you know, use that language because of the implication of the word priest. Um, mm. But I actually went ahead and did it for this reason. Um, a priest, yeah, if, if you go back uh, to the uh, original word priest, it didn't have any religious connotation. Um, it was a, an elder that facilitated conversation. That's what the original priest was. It was an elder that facilitated uh, conversation. Um, so a merchant priest would be somebody that has, is holding an ideal, uh, holding a, a, an awareness state, a level of awareness about what could be possible. And they then facilitate a, dog, a dialogue. They, can, you know, they facilitate a conversation about what business can do and what we as a people can do. And that, I think, is one of the ways out. Again, I kind of go back to some of our opening comments. Business is the most pervasive force on the planet. Business leaders are listened to. Um, you know, Warren Buffett... Uh, the, you know, the sage of uh, Topeka. Uh, people wait with bated breath for his annual report to come out. You know, they, yeah. they digest it. Um, when Howard Schultz you know, makes a pronouncement about some things, uh, people listen to it. Um, yeah. there, there, are the, there, there are these leaders that when they speak, and they speak in a responsible way about the about the responsibility of business and about the power of business, people kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And now I'm, I'm, I'm talking about some exemplars, but there's no reason that the mom and, you know, the, the person that's running the mom and pop store can't be a merchant priest as well. They, they right. speak to how we do business as a community, how we do business in this neighborhood, these neighborhood collectives that we can get to. I mean, that, that's, that's how this begins to happen, I think. And then the consumer has a big voice in this as well, an enormous voice in terms of where they actually spend their money. So we, um, we've gone over, and we're going to keep talking because I don't want to take a break, and we've got about five minutes left in our show. And um, you talk about the four pillars that actually we should be um, following in order not only personally, but leaders in organizations can utilize, can use as their templates to determine if they are uh, moving toward a compassionate capitalism model. Tell us about the four pillars um, well, you know, partly what we're looking at here is, I mean, I, I tried to codify as best I could a simple way of thinking about it. And the idea of um, just kind of looking at what we do as, as businesses here uh, makes a big difference. So when we look at, uh, you know, what you're referring to as the four pillars, you know, 
what I'm talking about is uh, addressing uh, the things around rampant, com- you know, rampant consumerism, as an example. How do we address that? How do oh, we right. You know, and I, I love the way that you talk about that, um, you know, the four pillars being gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we usually don't refer to gratitude and empathy when we talk about business, right? We right. Accountability, yes, you know, and, um, and, and most investors would say, oh, well, accountability is short-term profit. And effective communication, you know, that phrase gets bantered around forever in organizations and nobody really defines what that means to them. Um, and, but these four, gratitude, empathy, accountability, and effective communication, um, I, I mean, if, if all of us as individuals simply embrace this every single day, you know, am I living this every single day, our whole society would change. Well, that's, yeah, particularly with, the, you know, the gratitude and the empathy piece. This is, you know, the, the tagline, well, the, the title of the book, Compassionate Capitalism, almost seems oxymoronic. Uh, to people when they first come across it. Yeah. Can, yeah, compassion and capitalism coexist. Compassion, yeah, it, compassion is not a soft, fuzzy, squishable concept. It is a hard-edged uh, behavior, if you will. And I'll just put it in the context of behavior. It's not, I'm not feeling compassionate. I am compassionate. And what I mean by that yeah. is I have to, I have to confront the choices we make from the perspective of empathy and accountability in part here. Um, my actions make a difference. My actions and the, the actions of my business, the actions of the businesses I buy from make a difference. Are they accountable? So compassion here is, is, is really kind of saying, wait a minute, I'm taking the risk here of calling this out. It's a compassionate thing to do in the broader sense. So there's a challenge that comes uh, kind of steeped in the behavior of compassion. It creates vulnerability. And what's powerful about vulnerability, and that's what happens when you start moving outside of what is known. You, you start moving into areas that you're not certain about. Vulnerability is the place we are most alive. When I am really vulnerable, that is where I'm most exposed. And where I'm most exposed is where I am potentially most alive, most creative, and actually more powerful, most powerful. So I want to be able to have gratitude for what life brings to me. I want to be able to have empathy, which you know is about forgiveness, but it also is about being able to put myself in the place of somebody to hear how they're seeing it without getting in their face and causing defensiveness. Accountability really is, I'm in control. I, I really have accountability for what, for what goes on on my, uh, you know, on my watch. And the, the whole notion of communication, uh, everything in life is a function of and a, and a representation of uh, relationship. We, we know who we are by the relationships that we have. The quality and effectiveness of my relationships in large part, I'm going to say in large part, in, in, I mean it literally, determines the quality and effectiveness of my life. Mm. And the lifeblood of relationship is communication. 
without communication, we don't have the basis to actually connect. And that's what relationships are about. They're about connection. And this kind of goes all the way back. And that's what good companies do is they connect with they connect. the people they serve and they connect with their employees and, and people in society. We connect with each other if we are healthy. And, Lane, we could talk more about this forever, but guess what? We're out of time. And I really want people, I know, I really want people to know um, how they can reach you and um, where they can get your book. The book is most easily available on Amazon. Uh, Amazon.com, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. Uh, I'm most easily reached uh, either by my company website, avatarresources.com, or uh, my personal website, which is blainebartlett.com. And uh, Mm -hmm. there are email links on both of those sites. Fantastic. Blaine Bartlett, as always, your brilliant mind is so helping people to... Move past their limitations. So thank you so much for bringing your message to Leading Conversations today. And we'll have to have you back uh, as things evolve in our culture. I appreciate the opportunity to come back. Thanks, Cheryl. All right. Thanks, Blaine. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.